if you want to turn to James chapter five. I'm going to dive into this a little bit here. Um, we talked about, as we kind of concluded last week, and seeing the, the hardships that we may experience, the persecution even, at the hands of believers and non-believers, uh, as they take advantage, as they oppress, as they all of those kinds of things. And, and, and no matter what that context may look like, uh, here we have a specific context where people are being taken care of, be, being taken advantage of, they're not being paid, uh, and then some very specific context, remembering that this was addressed to the body of Christ. So there's some rebuke and correction in that. But whether it's believers or non-believers, our response is the same, and we are to wait on the Lord. And we pick up in verse 7 this morning, he says, be patient, therefore. We have the faithfulness of God, we have the assurance of his justice being executed, and so our responsibility in all of that is to wait on the Lord, to be patient. And I want to begin this morning uh, just defining terms. What does patience mean by just a little bit here? Now, when we talk about patience, and, and it all factors in, there's more than one word in Scripture translated patience. In fact, there's several words in the New Testament that are translated patience, and they have similar ideas, but this particular word carries with it and was, is probably more often translated long-suffering and not patience. So there's this sense of endurance, there's this uh, being slow towards something, whether it's wrath, whether it's despair, whether we're going to endure with this. Uh, long-suffering, as I said, is more often the translation of the particular word used here. But it very clearly, and no matter what the word that is used, that is translated patience, or to be patient, it always carries the idea of expectation. So when we're talking about patience, there is always this idea of hope. And we, as we looked in chapter one and we kind of delved into that, we're reminded that we count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. We count this joy and we know this because he says the trying of your faith works patience. It brings about within us. And then as we jump over to the book of Romans, when we were in chapter one, it says in patience doesn't leave us ashamed. It delivers on the promise. Because we're not being patient in regard to this interaction with that person or the oppression or the hardship that we're experiencing. We are being patient with the Lord. We are walking in trust of Him. So our res appropriate response, as He says, therefore, knowing that God is in fact faithful, knowing that God is for us and not against us, therefore, our appropriate response is patience is try this may be something that we have to simply purpose to do this is hard it's hot right we're looking forward to we're patiently enduring the heat i mean it wasn't that long ago where like, boy i just can't wait for the heat i mean you know we're fickle things human beings but here it is we're looking for and we know that there's an end coming God has appointed seasons. He's created them. He's given uh, the moon and the stars to identify those seasons, to keep track of time. We know that it's coming. We know that there is relief, uh, you know, 
even every night we know that it's coming. But nonetheless, I asked Jessica, I said, what do we, we don't have any plans this afternoon. She's like, no, I don't think we have anything going on. She said, I said, just sitting in the shade. And she says, yeah, unless it's too hot, then we're going to lay on the floor. And I'm like, yeah, you can't have any skin touching any other skin. Just try it, you know, it's hot. And we look forward to the evening. Here it comes, a little bit of relief, some cool air moving through. And then we look forward. There's this expectation. And the reason we have that firm expectation and the relief that's coming is because of what God has established, because of his faithfulness, because of his sovereignty. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. I'll put us in remembrance of just a few things before we move on uh, through this uh, little section of James chapter 5. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If, if the creator of the universe is, in fact, as Scripture tells us, and we can safely trust it, in the business of redeeming everything for our good, even the hardships and the oppressions, the effects of sin in our world, working those for our benefit, for our sanctification, for our molding into the image of Christ. If the worst thing that can happen in this life is God redeeming it for our absolute best, it's not too bad. And for the believer, that's ultimately the truth. That is the worst that we're going to experience in this life. Now, that doesn't mean that it will be easy. And I don't think the scripture paints that picture. I don't think that God is in the business of deceiving. He's going to tell us, and we're going to look at that. Hey, it could be hard. But nonetheless, we trust in the Lord. We wait patiently for the deliverance, for whatever may be coming, for the redemption of that thing in our life. Because the Lord of hosts, and we looked at that last week, the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of heaven, Because he is just, because he loves us, because we submit ourselves to his will, his plans, and his purpose. In faith, with that expectation, we're going to wait on the Lord. And when we talk about patience, that's what's being discussed here. My exercise of faith in God. We have to exercise patience as an act of faith. And just remember that I'm not exercising patience with that person or that situation, I am exercising faith, patience in God. And that's a huge distinction. When we focus on what's right here, we get caught up in what we, what we can see and touch and taste, and we walk by sight, and nothing's going my way, and everything's hard. But over here, I am waiting on the Lord, and He is faithful. And He's promised to give me grace. We're not left without the witness of Scripture. We look at that last week, and we saw in Hebrews, yeah, Hebrews chapter 12, through, through chapter 11 and into chapter 12, how God is con- continually trustworthy. Turn with me a few pages back to Romans 15, if you will. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Paul says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, 
that through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. That the witness of God, that he, as he's laid out his truth, what is here before us in the Bible, to say that I am trustworthy, that I am for you, that I am working on your behalf, that I am redeeming this for your best, that's the witness of Scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation, which is even looking forward to things that have yet to happen. That through patience, through this patient endurance, this long-suffering, this trust, this conscious act that I will choose to operate in faith of the God who is sovereign and not in, the, not in what I can see and wrap my puny little mind around because his ways are not our ways. They're much higher than our ways. They're not going to always make sense to you and I, but by faith, I can trust that this is it. God has my back. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He is, in fact, for me as he has declared. So as we define terms and we talk about patience, it's this idea of long-suffering. Remember that it has this expectancy, this hope linked to it, because our patience is with God and not the external circumstance that we find ourselves being tested in patience. So James says, be patient, therefore. Be patient, therefore. Let's read verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. We have an example in this verse, and the example that we have is the husbandman, the farmer. His job is to plant the seed, to put it in the ground, to and then do those things that are necessary to steward that crop. Okay, he doesn't throw, he doesn't scatter seed and wait for nothing. He, he does those things. You remember that Jesus gave the parable of the sowers, the, the, the wheat and the tares, rather, excuse me. There are those who are paying attention and doing what is necessary. Listen, somebody has come in, your enemy has come in and thrown those weeds, those tares, those things that are uh, competing with your grain. And so there's a decision has to be made, and we're going to leave that until the end. That's, and ultimately, that's up to the Lord. That's the point of that parable. But the idea here is that even in Jesus' time, there was a stewardship of whatever crop was being planted. It wasn't just scatter seed and hope for the best. There was some tending and some care related to that, and, he, and perhaps even more so today than there was then with, with modern irrigation and farming practices and all those kinds of things. Not an expert. I only know what I see in our area, what I observe in our agricultural community, right? But you put in some work. We have to irrigate this. We have to get water to these crops. We have to do all this. And here, the idea is that we're waiting. We are trusting in the Lord for the provision of rain, for the provision of what is necessary for these crops. Now, we could wait and say, okay, here's the early rain. And, and that's, we get the crops in the ground before the early rain because that's what's going to bring them up. But we also know that seasonally we have rain later in the year. 
And so we wait because that finishes the crop. So the farmer waits. He's patient. He endures through the temptation of, listen, things are looking bad. Things are, and, but the Lord delivers the rain. He brings what is necessary along for the production of fruit. And keep that thought in mind for just a moment, the production of fruit. Because ultimately, what's happening here, if God is for us and not against us, if he is the one that is growing us and redeeming things for our best, for our sanctification, for the molding into the image of Christ, our patience and that hopeful expectation is linked to the bearing of fruit in our lives. Where God himself is the husband and he is the one who is doing the work. He's the one that is bringing things to pass sovereignly so that we might grow Brings me to Galatians chapter 6. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6. We want to read verses 9 and 10. And just preceding this, this is where God is talking about not being mocked, that we're going to reap what we sow. And he says this in verses 9 and 10. And let us not be weary in well-doing. Right, That weary and well-doing, that's the opposite of patience. I've given up. I am no longer trusting the Lord. I am submitting myself, subjecting myself to the tyranny of the circumstances I found myself in. I have yielded to the temptation. I have given up the fight, whatever it may be. So we're not going to be weary and well-doing. We are going to endure. We are going to suffer long through whatever circumstance it may be, whatever oppression we may be struggling with, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The stewardship of whatever is happening within us. Now, God is the one doing the work. He is the husbandman, but we are coming alongside and participating in that sanctification process. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So not only are we to not give up, fall into despair, yield to the temptation to not trust the Lord, but we are to actively engage in the encouragement of one another. As we read in Hebrews chapter 10, not forsaking the assembling of, our, of ourselves together, it's the manner of some is, but provoking one another to love and good works, spurring on and encouraging, saying, listen, I see the hardship that you're having. How may I pray for you? How can I bear that burden alongside of you? Is there anything that we can do as a result of where you're at? Being part of the process in somebody else's life engaging with them to the extent that we're really experiencing fellowship, engaging with them to the sense that I get to be an instrument of sanctification in that person's life as a tool of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul spends a great deal of time not only telling us the simplicity and the, deep, the facts of the gospel, reminding us of the, the multitude of witnesses and the veracity and trustworthiness of that gospel and outlining the resurrection 
this expectation and this looking forward to of the redemption of our body, that which is sown or planted in death in corruption, affected and tainted by sin, and then raised again in imperfection. This expectation to look for, all of it is a discussion in some respects about patience. But he concludes the chapter in verse 58 with this verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, be unmovable. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. We're going to discuss that idea. But always abounding in the work of the Lord. In the midst of whatever trial, hardship, oppression, persecution, temptation, good times in our lives, the ups and the downs, God has a plan and a purpose for you and I to accomplish. And he doesn't say, listen, you're excused from the task at hand, that which I have called you and specially given you grace to accomplish because things are not going your way. We persevere. We, we are steadfast. We abound. We continue in the work of the Lord. We continue in those things that he has called us to. The general and the specific will that he may have for you and I as individual believers, as families, as a body of believers that has joined together in fellowship. James is reminding this church, these, these people who are suffering at the hands of others or who are oppressing others, that you have a responsibility in this engagement. That God is faithful, that we can safely trust him, that we are going to be steadfast and unmovable in our trust of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, and, and we'll move on from here, but Hebrews chapter 12, right? we have this witness of Scripture. We have these exhortations to continue in the work of the Lord. And it says this in verses 2 and 3 of Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus. So in the midst of all of this, as we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, as we are exercising patience, long-suffering, we are looking unto Jesus. Not only as the example, but for the grace to endure. We look unto Jesus, the author, the initiator, the beginner, and the finisher of our faith. He who will bring us through. A few weeks ago, we talked about being yoked with Christ. About him pulling alongside of us and bearing part of the burden that we are engaged in. And his example is part of that yoking, part of that bearing up. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Sam, Jesus was God in flesh. We will never, yeah, we probably never will be perfect. But here's the thing. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the example of our service to the Lord, of our faith and trust in God. Here he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane praying, if this cup can pass from me, 
knowing full well what was about to happen, that he was going to be made sin, that he was going to have to suffer the penalty and the consequence of all sin at the hand of his father, who he had never offended, who he had never sinned against for you and I. Nevertheless, he submitted himself. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, he said. And he willingly went to the cross. So much so that when they came after the, those prayers were uttered, after that interaction that we read about in John chapter 17, where Jesus even took the time to pray for you and I who would come to faith. When he had the opportunity to have escaped those who had come to, to take him by force if necessary, and, and he spoke his name, I am, and they fell down. And Peter, the disciple, pulls out his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. And he says, listen, Peter, I could have called legions of angels. I am the Lord of Sabaoth. I am the Lord of hosts. They would come to my rescue and my aid willingly and joyfully. Nevertheless, this is not the plan. Put your sword away. They have to take me. This is what it's for. He willingly went to the cross. And we look at what happens in our lives and, and while to you and I, it's substantial, and God understands that it's substantial. Jesus was our high priest who was tempted in every way that we've been tempted, yet without sin, we read in Hebrews 10, I believe. He understands where we're at. He can sympathize and he can empathize with the temptation that we are enduring. And here he is with us. Here he is as that example of continued trust in God. Looking and, and receiving the grace to endure. We look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, verse 3, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. We consider Jesus as the example so that we don't yield to the temptation to give up, to faint in our minds, to put off faith, to put off trust, that if God in the flesh would do everything necessary and endure the cross on our behalf, the least that we can do is abide in him is continue to trust in Him, to operate in patience, in that expective, hopeful endurance. The example of the farmer who waits for the beginning rain and the rain at the end of the season. He reaps the harvest when the fruit has been brought. That hope that we're looking forward to, that expectation, doesn't make us ashamed. It doesn't leave us without some claim, so to speak, upon the goodness or a witness of the goodness of God. Truth me to Romans chapter 2. Now, Romans chapter 2, we usually talk about it in the, in the context of unbelievers. We talk about it in the context of those who have rejected God. Uh, and are left without excuse. And while that is true, there is also some discussion here for you and I that is pertinent 
to what we're looking at. Romans chapter 2, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Now, verse 6 says, he who, speaking of God, will render to every man according to his deeds. So just pause there for a moment. We, in the context of James, we have those who are oppressing and who are persecuting, and where there's this waiting for and this trust in the Lord that he will execute justice, justice, that he is going to be faithful to part of who he is, his character. He is perfectly just. We have that expectation and hope. So here we have this confirmed that God will render to every man according to his deeds. And he says this, verse 7, to them who by patient continuance, by long-suffering endurance, uh, in other words, in well-doing, right, we stuck to it. We, we didn't yield to the temptation uh, to, to doubt God, to, to woe is me and, and wallow in despair. To them who in pa by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And the word immortality means incorruption. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, that being laid down, we're looking for that redeeming of ourselves in perfection, in the image of Christ perfectly. To those who continue, it's promised eternal life. And this is not a statement uh, regarding earning salvation, but it is the reward of righteousness. It is the fruit that is born about in you and I through our continuance, our long endurance, our expectation of what God has promised to do on our behalf. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and we, we referenced this earlier, but let me read it to you. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brother, and count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Right? Something is coming. There is fruit to be born through our endurance. Hope doesn't make us ashamed. In verse 11 of James chapter 5, behold, we count them happy which endure. Jesus would say it this way, blessed are you when men shall revile you, when you're persecuted, when, when you're ill-used for my namesake. And in verse 11, he gives the example of Job. He says, you have heard of the patience or the long-suffering, the endurance of Job, who though he was lo losing everything, wealth, family, health, and his wife would even tempt him uh, to curse God and die. He refused. And he said, though he kill me, though, though the Lord would slay me, yet will I trust him. If the Lord demanded of me my life, I would still trust him. He was steadfast and unmovable in his trust of the Lord. It was that very heart that would cause God to say of Job in the very beginning of the book, when the angels of the Lord and Satan himself comes past, 
Have you considered my servant Job? Have you seen the example? And we see that being this, which was written aforetime for our encouragement, for our edification, for our instruction. That here is Job, continuing patiently, long-suffering in his hardships, never fainting of his faith in the Lord. And in the end, we see that the Lord is very pitiful and full of tender mercy. The end of Job's life was more blessed than the beginning of Job's life. Everything that he lost was restored to him and more. We are to be steady on. In Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, as we are steady on, we understand that God is sovereign, that he is the one in control, that he is the one preparing you and I, molding us into the image of his son, that it is the predetermined plan of God, which according to Romans chapter 8, that we would be so, that we would be conformed to that image. We would expect that God would move in that way because he has told us that he will. This is my plan for you who will put faith in me so that we might be effective witnesses, so that his glory may be known, so that his faithfulness and trustworthiness may be spread and witnessed to the world around us. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, this is one of our memory verses, we have the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That's the same word used in James. Long-suffering. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. If God is the farmer, the husbandman of our lives and our faith, he's engaged in this process to bring about fruit in your life and in my life. The fruit of the Spirit isn't something that you nor I will manufacture We could participate in the process, but it is what God sows in our life. It is what he tends and stewards in our life. It's what he is actively engaged in in our life to bring about in us. Reflections of his character, reflections of his uh, nature, so that we might be those effective and consistent representatives, ambassadors here in this world. Turn with you back to James chapter 5. Let's look at verse 8. Be also patient. It's the same word. He reiterates, be also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. It draws close. Establish your hearts. We talk about when we, when we discuss apologetics, we talk about the presuppositions that we hold. That these are the things that from the very beginning, we assume them to be completely and 100% true, that God exists and that his word is true. Here in this verse, when we're talking about establishing our hearts, based upon those very truths, we have a predetermined plan of what we are going to do 
when those things hit. It's become a thing in the corporate world to have trainings, and it's a sad commentary on the world that we live in, trainings regarding active shooters and how we as employees or how we as, who, well, probably employees, how we should respond, what we should do. And the first thing that they always talk about is before you ever get into the circumstance, just know where you should get out at. Right? When you walk into a building, you should take just a few seconds, and it really doesn't take that long, identify where the exits are. Because there's probably exits in the back that you're unfamiliar with, right? If you go to Walmart, we, we, we did this the other day at dinner. How many exits are there at Walmart? And the initial answer was like two or three or four. And then we started to type, well, yeah, there were some in the back. You, don't, you can't see them, but there's an exit sign there, so you know you can get out. Well, through the produce section, you can go over there. And, I mean, there's lots of exits. But we have to take the time to know where they are. And then where am I in relation to that? I'm not going to run all the way across the store. I'm going to go to the nearest one. We have a predetermined plan based on where we're at and the circumstance we find ourselves in. If there's not a bad situation happening up in the front, I'm probably not going to take the side exit. That's not going to work out well. The predetermined plan is go to the front, pay for your groceries, and use those exits, right? And it's the same way that you and I, as we establish our hearts, we have a predetermined plan. These are the presuppositions. This is what we know of God. This is what he has revealed of himself. We have the witness of scripture throughout history, from the very beginning all the way through the very end, history, future, all of those things being true. So therefore, be patient. What is my predetermined plan? What am I going to do? I've established my heart. I'm going to, that, that means to settle in my heart that I'm going to trust. I've already made the choice so that when it happens, when it comes, when hardship comes, when the rain is pounding, it's like the man that Jesus gave in the parable, the two men, one built their, his house on the sand and the other built his house on the rock. The guy who built his house on the sand, when everything crashes down, it's washed away. He didn't establish his foundation. He didn't establish his heart. But the guy who dug down to the foundation, to the rock that is unmovable and built upon that, he had already determined that when the storm hits, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change because I took the time ahead of time. So we're making the conscious effort. We're making the choice right now based upon what God has revealed of himself, his goodness, his faithfulness, his love, his concern, his mercy, his justice, who he is, and that consistent witness from Genesis to Revelation of his word, which is true, what we're going to do and how we're going to respond when any circumstance comes our way. How do I endure? How do I suffer long through whatever circumstance I find myself in? What am I going to do? How am I going to stand firm? Turn with me to John chapter 6. I'm convinced that Jesus himself gave us this very counsel. John chapter 16. I think I said John chapter 6. John chapter 16. Verses 1 through 4. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. And that word offended means stumbled or tripped up. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever will kill you will think that he does good God's service. 
And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But things, these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I have told you them. And these things I said unto you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus said, listen, I am preparing you. I am training you so that when it happens, you will know what to do. You will know how to respond. Your heart will have been established. It's going to happen. There are going to be those who oppress. There will be those who take advantage. There's going to be those seasons in our lives where things are going really well. And I think if we stood back 15 years later, and we compared side by side the times when things seemed to be going really well and the times when we were struggling, when we, we identified oppression and hardship. I suspect that the circumstances are the same. That the same things were happening because there's no temptation that is taking you that isn't common. The same things were happening. What was different is where I had established my heart in both circumstances. My predetermined plan over here was to stand fast, was to trust the Lord. And as a result, we reaped peace, joy, long-suffering. But over here, same circumstances without my heart established. And I struggled. And it was hard. And I look back and I didn't enjoy that time. It wasn't a time where I felt close to the Lord even. Though he was right there. My perspective was different. Your perspective was different. But God's never changed. Jesus is telling us, be prepared. Establish your heart now. Determine that I will always operate by faith. That I'm going to trust the Lord no matter what comes my way. Whether it makes sense or whether it doesn't make sense. And be ready because it probably won't make sense. But I'm going to trust the Lord. We're going to operate that way. We're going to establish ourselves before it happens. Turn with me to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 14. Here's a psalm of David. Now, David was a person who was familiar with ups and downs. He was a man after God's own heart. He had long established his heart to be trusted in the Lord, but not always. He had, he had his ups and downs, his struggles of faith. Nonetheless, he chose and he purposed before the Lord that he would honor him in all that he did. So much so that on his deathbed, when he was about to die, uh, and God had already told him, you can't build a temple, he says, but I'm going to do everything I can to prepare for it. I want to honor the Lord, and I realize that that's been removed from me because of the decisions that I've made in my past, because of the life that I have led. But nonetheless, Lord, I can prepare for the next generation. And that's what he did. He stored up the things that were necessary for the construction of the temple, and then Solomon built it. He says this in Psalm 27, 14, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Steal yourself in the knowledge that God has never left you, never forsaken you, that he is still there, that he is trustworthy. Wait on the Lord. When the nation of Israel is out on the peninsula there the, after they've left Egypt and, and the armies of Pharaoh are bearing down upon them. 
and they're grumbling and complaining because they haven't established themselves as people of trust. And, and Moses prays and God tells him, listen, be still and know that I'm God. Look, just stand here and wait and see that I am in fact going to deliver you. See the salvation of God as you wait upon him, as you endure with long suffering. It doesn't make any sense. We make no defense. We don't do anything. We just wait. But nonetheless, this is what we're going to do. And then as God directs, Moses goes out and he puts his staff into the Red Sea and the parts and they cross on dry land. And Pharaoh's army, not only as they pursue, but they're consumed and they're delivered completely and wholly. Not just a little bit. Not just in the, we could probably overcome, there's enough, there's more of us than them. And so therefore, some of us will survive, which is better than none of us. But God's intent wasn't to just get them by. God's intent was to deliver them and show himself strong on their behalf. In Psalm 46, Psalm 46, the entire psalm, we're going to read it. It's only 11 verses. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will, we, will not we fear, though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the work of the Lord. What desolation he has made in the earth. He makes wars to cease from the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. We have this description of the ability of God to deliver his people no matter what the circumstance, and, and miraculously and spectacularly so. And this is the takeaway from it. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The conclusion, therefore, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That's where we protect. That's where we hide, as it were, in times of trouble. In 1 Samuel 17, we were there last week, and this is, this is where... Uh, David faces Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 46. Just before the battle ensues between the giant Goliath and David, there's an exchange of words, a little bit of taunting on either side. And what I want you to see here is that David had established his heart. He's already talked about, listen, I don't need armor. I don't need fancy weapons. God delivered the bear and the lion into my hand when I was watching my father's sheep. He'll do exactly the same with this Philistine. 
this one who is cursing and blaspheming the God of heaven. He'd already established his heart. He knew the outcome. He knew the faithfulness of God. And even if he lost, which was a very big if in his mind, even if he lost, God was still faithful. God was still sovereign. God was still in control. And his plans and purpose and will was going to be accomplished no matter what. So David goes in with great confidence. He goes in with absolute trust in the Lord that this is, this is going to end well. And he says in verse 46, this day will the Lord deliver thee. This day will. It's a certainty and it's a fact in his heart and mind. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David wasn't about his own glory or his own uh, fame and renown. But he knew that God would show himself strong so that God may be made known. Why is God faithful to you and I? There is the fact that he loves us, that he is concerned for us. But there's a greater fact at play here that God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. 1 Peter 3, 9, that through his faithfulness to you and to me, he makes himself known and understood in that capacity to the world around him. Those who are looking for, those who are, who are trying to find him, so to speak, and we have the ability to say, look at the faithfulness of God. Look at how he has delivered and moved strong on our behalf. Look at how he is trustworthy. Look at who he is. So that God, they may know that there is a God in Israel. That was why he was certain. He wasn't certain. He wasn't being patient with the fact that maybe this will happen or maybe that will happen. He was being patient because he knew that God was faithful. We're going to have a predetermined plan. We're going to establish our hearts we're going to build upon the rock of faith, establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Throughout all of this, we have, we have the witness of the farmer. We have the witness of Job in, in James chapter 5. We have the witness of prophecy. The certainty is yet to come, but it will come. And even if we have to wait that long, we're going to continue to endure. Our heart is established even to that point even to the above and beyond. And you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and those examples of faith, those who would endure, those who did suffer long. And it says they were looking for this city, this heavenly city, and none of them saw it. But with expectancy, they endured, knowing that it was coming, knowing that God, in fact, was still faithful. Even if I don't see with my own eyes, I know what's happening. James chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Grudge not against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. Now that word grudge, that means to groan or to complain or to murmur against. 
His exhortation to this group of believers is, listen, there are those, even those among you who would oppress you and take advantage of you. And he says, don't grumble against them. In fact, the idea is so certain that he's like, we don't even harbor the ill thoughts toward one another. Right? This, this body of Christ that has been put together is such that it should be protected. And I have to protect it for myself, perhaps. I'm not going to grudge. I'm not going to speak evil. That's not ever going to complain or murmur against those within the body of Christ. And that's a hard thing because, as I said earlier, we as humans are fickle. We're easily offended. And we like to air those offenses. And it ought not to be so. Not in the body of Christ. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. The idea here is that when we grudge, when we groan and murmur and complain against those people, when we air those offenses, when we take the opportunity to just let me tell you about this guy or that lady, we've already sought vengeance. We, we, that's it. We, we have done that. And God is here commanding us long ago, don't do that. Why? We're enduring. We're patiently long-suffering with the expectation that God is in fact just. I don't have to air those offenses. I can trust that whether it's me or somebody else that God is going to use in that person's life to grow them or change them in that area to affect sanctification in that particular area that we might have been offended in, I could trust that that's in process. And so therefore, I'm going to establish my heart in the understanding that I'm not going to cut anybody down. I'm not going to grudge against them. Instead, my response, my obligation before the Lord is to love them as myself. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus is uh, nearing the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. Judge not that you be not judged. I just want to pause there for a moment and give this little caveat. He, he's not talking about discernment. He's not talking about calling sin, sin. That's fine and that's appropriate. We should do those. We should do that. We should identify those things. But what it doesn't mean is we're not backbiting, we're not gossiping, we're not using that as an opportunity to tear somebody down because they have a struggle with sin in, them, in their life. Right? That would be where we want to reference. Well, well, just stick with me. He says, For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet or, or you deal it out, it shall be measured to you. And he continues on, why behold us thou the moat, the speck, a little bit of dust in your brother's eye when you've got a giant beam in your own eye. 
we're all guilty. We're all at a different place in respect to uh, our growth in the Lord. And so therefore, we might expect that there's going to be some uh, rubbing every now and then. When we are those who sharpen one another, there's some abrasion required. That you might rub me and I'm going to rub you and it's going to be maybe not always smooth going. Sometimes it's a little rough and sometimes it causes a little friction. But nonetheless, in the end, what happens? We're both honed. We're both prepared for the task at hand. We both grow in that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't judge lest you be judged. And what what he means is, listen, they're at a different place than you are. And you've got stuff in your life that has to be dealt with just the same. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. Right, Just like that farmer who waits. Man, this crop is looking really good. Things are going good. Let's go ahead and harvest. But we're going to wait for that latter rain because we want the crop to finish. It looks good now, but it's going to get better. There's something yet to come to bring this crop to perfection. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Who will, bo- who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. But here's the thing. When we execute this condemnation or this grudgingness, this complaint and murmuring against one another, we get to say, in effect, I know better than God. I can see into their heart. We've already had this discussion. This has already been addressed in James. But it's the same idea. Let's wait for the fruit in that person's life before we cast judgment. God is the one who knows. God is the one who sees. Therefore, we're not going to judge anything before the time. Now, it may be opportunity. It may be one of those instances where we get to see the brother who's stuck in sin, and we get to be engaged in that. I'm not saying don't have a conversation. But that's talking to that person, not talking about that person. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Verses 19 through 21. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. Or in other words, be patient. Be long-suffering. Give place to wrath. Allow God to do his work. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, therefore, this is our response. This is how we appropriately interact when we are harmed, when we are wrong. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If they thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now, the idea isn't here that we're doing this because I can somehow avenge myself through keeping coals of fire on it. That's that's missing the point, right? He sums it up in verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a monumentally hard thing for you and I. 
for human for people that are corrupted by sin, this is a tough thing. Because the temptation is to repay in kind. Right? I, I read in the Bible an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And here we're told, listen, give place, be long-suffering, let God do what needs to be done. Let him bring about the fruit in that person that needs to be brought about. Your obligation is to love people and to love God. And here are some ways you should love your enemy, just as you would love yourself. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. It becomes a witness to the world around us. Not only that, it becomes a witness to the person that we are doing that unto. It's, it's a witness of God's goodness. Verse 10, James chapter 5. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. As you look in the Old Testament, as you study through the prophets that God has called to be his witnesses, to be those who would bring the word of the Lord, they suffered as a result. There was hardship. God was calling them to do things that were oftentimes strange. You look at Hosea and he says, listen, Hosea, I want you to go marry uh, an adulteress. I want you uh, to marry a prostitute. And, and this is what you're going to name your kids. And all of this is a witness and this visual example of the adultery of my people with me. And he, and he speaks, and, and not only that, but lay on your side for this long, and then lay on the other side for this long. I mean, just oddball things. And they're persecuted as a result of those things. Not only that, but the message that they're told to bring is really unpopular because oftentimes for the nation of Israel and for Judah, this is a condemnation. We are in sin as a nation. We need to correct ourselves, and nobody likes to be told that we're in sin. I mean, Jesus addressed that in John chapter 3, right? We don't like our deeds brought to the light because they're exposed as evil. But this was the task the prophets were often given by the Lord. Think of Jeremiah, who God said, listen, don't marry, don't have children. And by the way, you're going to be the prophet that condemns the nation of Israel so much so that he's imprisoned. I mean, he's the persecuted prophet. He's the poster child of the persecuted prophets. But he's not exclusive in any of that. In Acts chapter 7, if you'll turn there with me, Acts chapter 7, we find the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And in the midst of this, verse 52, which, by the way, this is probably, in my opinion, this is one of the greatest sermons ever preached in Scripture. Here, I mean, Stephen was a man who was chosen for his qualification of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so by the Spirit on, I mean, as he's facing imminent death, he begins to address the hard-heartedness, the stiff-neckedness of the, these people who were about to kill him. And not only that, but he reiterates over and over and over the truth and the reality of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. In the moments where Stephen was about to die, what did he do? He preached the gospel. 
And he says this, and he uses the prophets as an example in verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your father persecuted? All of them have been persecuted. And they have slain them, which have showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been the betrayers and murderers. That's pretty hard hitting. But listen, you guys persecuted the prophets. You yourselves put the just one, the Messiah, the promised one, to death. In Luke chapter 13, as Jesus is speaking, Luke chapter 13, verse 34, as he comes into Jerusalem, He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and sonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jesus authenticates the very message that Stephen was bringing, says the same thing. You've persecuted the prophets, those which I have sent to you to bring the message of hope and redemption and deliverance, and you've killed them. Those who I have sent your way to confront you in the sin that you're in so that you might be saved out of it. And you've killed them. But, I want, but what I want you to see, what I want you to take away from this verse the most is in regard to our long suffering, our patience, that, that endurance with hope of those who may oppress us, the heart of the Lord in this. Though they've killed the prophets, so they've rejected him time and time again, though they rejected Jesus himself, what did he say? I would have gathered you time and time again. How often I would have gathered you together. How often I would have brought you in just as a hen does, and you would have been my children, my little brood. His long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish. So the hardships that we encounter, that we may endure, those areas where we are going to practice long-suffering, where we've established our hearts and minds that I will trust in the Lord, that I will wait upon His plan and purpose and the fruit in my life and in that person's life. Why? Because the Lord is tender-hearted toward them, toward you and me. Because He is, in fact, faithful. Because He is, in fact, God I will submit myself to the things that I may suffer at other people's hands. As a witness to them who are seeing what is going on, as a witness to those who may be persecuting, who may be the antagonist, so that they might see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together, Lord, and I praise you for your word. I praise you for the encouragement and hopefully the encouragement that we receive from it, that, that establishment of our hearts. And I pray, Lord, by your grace that you would help us to settle ourselves in our faith, in our trust of you. Thank you, Lord, for the witness of your word, the witness of those who have gone before and have trusted. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. We pray for grace that we might stand, that we might be your witnesses, that we might be those who would, uh, Lord, endure long with hope and expectation. We know that we can only do it by your grace. 
And Lord, I pray for the witness, uh, for those who are witnessing those things that may happen to us, Lord, that they would see a clear picture, that their hearts would be pricked, that they would be uh, stopped in their tracks, as it were. And Lord, that we would be bold. That we'd be those who would speak that truth. That we would, like Stephen, at the point of his martyrdom, preach the gospel. We thank you, Lord, as we have opportunity to worship and to sing praise for who you are and all that you've done. God, I pray that you would receive it as the offering of our lips. As our hearts are bowed, Lord, we praise you and we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.